If you're in a car and you brake suddenly, your body will be propelled forward and you won't stop unless the seatbelt restrains you or you'll hit your head on the windshield. If you trip and you're falling forward, you will continue to fall unless you are stopped by someone or something. If you're on a bicycle and you hit a curb, the bike will stop, but you will go flying over the handlebars. Objects in motion stay in motion. Once something starts to move in a direction, it won't stop unless it is stopped by force or redirected by force. This is Isaac Newton's first law of motion. And there's a correlation between this law and our lives as image-bearing, moral, ethical beings. See, we are people in motion. We are pilgrims in motion. Every one of us in this room is on a pilgrimage, heading somewhere to a destination. And the path comes with progression and regression, excitement and uncertainty, peace and suffering, joy and sorrow, accelerations and diversions. The question is, who or what is guiding you, orienting you, and reorienting you on the journey? Well, please open your Bible to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, if you go to the end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, and hang a left, just a few pages, you will safely arrive at 1 Peter. This morning, we're returning to our occasional sermon series in this letter. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one under a seat near you. You can find 1 Peter on page 953. I'll be reading out of the ESV translation this morning, the same translation as our chair Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please find me after the service. We would love nothing more than to get one into your hands. This is God's heart-changing and hope-giving word from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through chapter 4, verse 11. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect." 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. This is God's word. He is worthy to be praised. Let's say that together. He is worthy to be praised. Amen. Let's pray before we work through this text. O oh, Father, Son, and Spirit, sanctify us in the truth. Your word, O oh Lord, is truth. Open our eyes and our ears, our minds, and our hearts to receive your word. Help us to put away the distractions of this week and find solace in your word this morning. Cause us to behold the risen Christ. And Lord, we ask that we would not just be informed by your word, but that we would be transformed by it. And strengthen your imperfect and weak servant now, O Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, thus far in 1 Peter, in this letter, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been encouraging elect exiles, sojourners, citizens, and pilgrims of a better kingdom to ground their faith in the living Christ, the servant king, Jesus. And from the very first sentence of the letter, up until the text that we just read, Peter has told the church, us, who we are in Christ. 
what we have in Christ and how we are to live in Christ before a watching world. And in the previous section, Peter pressed the church to recognize that our relationship with Jesus transforms our earthly relationships. And there he called the church to engage the government and the workplace and the home with Christ-like submission, service, and understanding. And we saw at the very center of Peter's appeal last month in that previous section of the letter, we saw that the gospel was at the very center of it. At the very center of that section of the text. And it's here in this section, the section that we just read, where Peter presses on and further in, and he encourages pilgrim saints in motion who are prone to wander and often need reorienting to walk the heaven-bound path together in accordance with the gospel. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the main idea of the text. The gospel reorients our calling, suffering, and living. The gospel reorients our calling, suffering, and living. So point one, let's look at our gospel-oriented calling in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. I have a sweet and pleasant memory of my children learning how to walk. And I remember how they would get up and then they would fall. They would get up, walk one or two steps and then fall again. And when they did, I would typically say, come on, get up. What's wrong with you? No, no, that's not what I, that's not what I said. I said, Good job. You can do it. Keep it up. You're doing it. And that's what Peter is doing here in these first verses of this section. This is what Peter wants us to hear in his word to us this morning. Here we behold Peter the encourager. He is dousing us, dousing the church in encouragement. He is cheering us on with words of encouragement, coaching us in love to be the church and to act like the church. And he does this as he pulls together a summary statement of what he's already told us in the letters so far there in chapter 3, verse 8. There in that verse, he calls pilgrim exiles then and now to action in five ways. Have unity of mind, have sympathy, have brotherly love, have tenderness, have a humble mind. He says all of you, or in the cowboy translation, y'all, have unity of mind. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter exhorted the church to prepare their minds and be sober-minded. And here he builds on that, saying, pursue unity of mind, pursue unity of worldview in the church. He also says, y'all have sympathy. Be sympathetic toward one another. He alluded this to this in chapter 3, verse 7, where he called husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. 
Peter is saying, be sympathetic toward one another. Take pity and have compassion toward one another in weakness. Just as Jesus is the sympathetic high priest, we are to follow in his footsteps and be sympathetic toward one another. Third, Peter says, have brotherly love. Just as Peter said back in chapter 1, verse 22, here he is again calling the church to a unique covenant, familial and sacrificial Christ-like love for one another. He also says, have a tender heart. Peter alluded this, to this back in chapter 3, verse 4, where he called women and men by principle to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Fifth, he says, have a humble mind. With Christ-oriented obedience and submission comes a humble mind. We are called to be humble as Christ is humble. Within these five actions, Peter is calling the local church to a gospel culture of one anothering. He is reorienting us. Does it seem like Peter is asking for utopia here? No, he, he's just calling Christians to be Christians. And so EBC, when we look at this list, where do we need to grow in our unity of mind, our sympathy, our love, our tenderheartedness and humility? May this list convict us, encourage us, and then move us to prayer and move us to stir one another up to love and good works. That's what Peter is doing here. He is stirring us up and encouraging us. And he's asking us to not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling in the church or outside the church, but instead to bless one another. As he says there in verse 9, Beloved, the spirit through the hand of Peter is summoning us to live out our gospel-oriented calling. He is pleading with repentant sinners, sufferers, and saints to bless one another in light of the person and work of the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Christ. And when we bless, we obtain a blessing, as it says in verse 9. When we bless in word or deed, we gain God's eye ear, and smile. Well, in classic Peter fashion, he doesn't just tell the church what this looks like. He shows us and gives us a model from Scripture. He gives us King David and his words in Psalm 34. We saw this in verses 10 through 12. Rebecca read it to us earlier. Peter wants us to learn from David here to sit at his feet and to watch how he models what it is to be reviled and not revile in return, but instead bless the Lord and bless his enemies in word and deed. What an encouragement it would be to pilgrim saints in exile and longing for home to be reminded that even King David, though imperfectly, blessed those who persecuted him and showed goodness, peace, and mercy toward his enemies. This is a challenging and extraordinary calling, isn't it? But Peter is exhorting the church and us, us, to pursue this work of grace, to bless others even in the midst of fear and suffering.
That brings us to point two, gospel-oriented suffering. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 13 through 22. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. With a rhetorical question there in verse 13, and then a response to that question in verses 14 through 17, Peter desires that the people of God, those zealous for what is good and righteous, would suffer well for the sake of righteousness. He desires the people of God would suffer well so that they may receive the blessing of God. He desires that the church would honor Christ in their hearts, even in the midst of fear and suffering. In Proverbs 4, verse 23, the author states that we are to keep our hearts with all vigilance, for from the heart flows the issues and troubles of life. But when the heart is fixed on honoring Christ, it is fixed on fearing God, it puts away fear of man and anxiety and issues and troubles and instead finds its rest in God even in the midst of suffering. And when we keep our hearts with God's help and we suffer well, our lives become a living defense of the living hope that we have in Jesus. You may have heard in the past, verse 15, as a proof text for apologetics and giving a general defense for the faith. But in, in the context, here's the point. Here's the point that Peter's making. The way we endure suffering is the greatest argument for our faith in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, how do you suffer? How have you suffered in the past? How are you suffering in the present? And how will you suffer in the inevitable future? We are to prepare our hearts for suffering and be prepared to give a reason for the faith that we have even in the midst of it. Speaking and living with gentleness, respect, and a good conscience before a watching world no matter what comes in the providence of our God. It's beautiful what Peter does here as he pulls truth from earlier in the letter from chapter 2 verse 12. Here he encourages the church yet again to continue to live honorably with good behavior, he says, before the world that it may be put to shame 
even as it hates, reviles, and slanders us, as it says in verse 16. It is better to suffer well on account of what is good for the sake of righteousness. And that is a testimony before a watching world. And again, in true Peter fashion, he doesn't just tell the church what to do here and how, how to do life. He shows the church by way of a model what it looks like to suffer well. And who does he give us? King Jesus. He gives us Jesus in verses 18 through 22. Now I know, as I was reading earlier, you were thinking, ooh, I wonder what he's going to do with that crazy section right there in verses uh, 18 through 22. Um, what does it mean that Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit? What does it mean that he went and proclaimed to the disobedient spirits in prison? What does it mean and why did he bring up Noah's ark and baptism? And I thought Peter said in chapter 1 and 2 that salvation is fully of God. Is he contradicting himself here? Well, first, Jesus was truly God and truly man. He literally died in the flesh and he took the weight of God's wrath against your sin and mine upon himself and declared it is finished as he died as our substitute redeemer. And he was raised to new life in victory in his bodily resurrection three days later. Second, what does it mean that he went and proclaimed to the disobedient spirits in prison I don't know. Church history is really split on what this means exactly. But I'm going to circle back here in just a moment and tell you what I believe is happening here in the context of this section. Third, is Peter contradicting himself? No, he's not. He's not saying that baptism saves you, but he is connecting Noah's ark and the salvation that came through that ark in the plan of God, and baptism there in verse 20. For baptism is a picture of the gospel. It is a living picture of what it is to be plunged into death and raised again to new life. It is a picture of what it is to publicly identify with God and his people. And here's the point. It is through the death and resurrection of Christ that the people of God victoriously pass through the waters of God's judgment and are saved. Baptism is a living, breathing picture of this truth. And so pulling it all together, here's what I believe is ultimately going on in this section of the letter. Here's why Peter included this. What do the people of God need to hear as they endure suffering in this life? What do pilgrims need to hear as they're battered and beaten, as we endure much suffering and sorrow in this life on our journey home? We need the suffering King Jesus. We need his victorious life, death, and resurrection. We need the gospel. I've been here as your associate pastor for eight months now, 
And it has been a joy and a privilege to get to know so many of you, to hear the evidences of God's grace and mercy in your lives. It's been sweet. The Lord is at work here, and I'm praising the Lord for that. But it's in the inevitable reality of your suffering. And it's how you have suffered well. That's what gets to me. From cancer or sickness, mental illness, trauma, family estrangement, family crisis, hurt, misunderstanding, broken, and then rebroken trust. It's those stories of how you have suffered and suffered well in the midst of those trials that hit me. They jolt me and cause me to recognize this important truth, brothers and sisters that your greatest need is Jesus. That my greatest need is Jesus. That our greatest need as a church is Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't know this Jesus, his person and work, the salvation that can only come through him, then hear his call from his word today. If you have questions about what it would look like to Repent of the sin that separates you from Jesus today and to walk in new life with him. And what it means to be a part of a local body, a local church like this. I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to speak with you. I would love nothing more than to see you respond to the gospel, to the good news of Christ's victory over the entire world today. But Christian, our greatest need is Christ and the gospel. And he has met that need, hasn't he? And this is why Peter proclaims to the church throughout this section Christ's victory. He's talking to Christians. Christ suffered once and for all for our sins. In and through him, there was a great exchange, as we just read. Our unrighteousness for his righteousness And he has risen and is alive, as it says in verses 18 and 22. But he's not just alive. He's in heaven now, reigning as king at the right hand of God. And all angels, authorities, and powers submit to him. They are subjected to him. Beloved, this isn't something that's going to happen like in the future. This is happening now. This is happening right now. Now, and because of him, even in the midst of suffering and death, we can declare Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In the person and finished work of Jesus, death, the world, the flesh, and the devil have been defeated. And if God is for us in this way, who could be against us? Who can be against us? Because of him, we can live with a gospel-oriented hope, even in the midst of suffering, in all circumstances, really, of life. Recognizing that Jesus is not only God with us, but that he is God for us. He lived the paradox that the way up is the way down. That through suffering has come victory and exaltation through him. 
and how God has ultimately displayed this truth. How has he displayed this truth? He has done it in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. It was in the cross where Jesus, the perfect and righteous son of God, was crucified as a substitute in the place of sinners so that all who repent of sin and believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. At the cross, Christ drank the cup reserved for us of God's judgment and he drank it all the way down to the bottom. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. His blood was poured out for our sake and with every drip by drip by drip of his blood, our sins by sin by sin were washed away. And in the suffering of Jesus, God declared that he is definitely and infinitely and intimately for us. Isn't that amazing? God is so good. And so when was the last time that you looked at your suffering in light of the cross? Peter's encouraging us to do that. Beloved, in the suffering of Christ, our suffering has been swallowed up, and that doesn't make suffering any easier. I understand that. This is not the way it was supposed to be. But as we wait for the living Christ to return, we can live with a deep living hope even in the midst of deep suffering. For we have him and his gospel. And he is with us even to the end of the age by his spirit. And it's the spirit that dwells in Christian pilgrims. We who are living lives of ongoing repentance and faith today as we walk toward heaven together. It's the spirit that supernaturally enables us to suffer well in a gospel-oriented way. And it's the spirit that drives us and reorients our very lives. And that really leads us to point three. Gospel-oriented living. Chapter four, verses one through 11. Let me read those verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, we are pilgrims in motion. We are all headed somewhere. And how we fulfill the call to bless others, how we suffer and how we live in the present matters to God. And here in Chapter 4, verse 1, we read the word therefore, and we should ask, what's it therefore? 
It's clear. Peter wants us to connect this section of the text to the previous. wants us to hitch it to that last section. And here, Peter speaks into how we suffer and live. And he speaks to us like a commander speaking to a battalion, doesn't he? He tells the church, just as Christ expected suffering, we ought to expect the same. And so he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he suffered bodily. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking or with the same attitude. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Or whoever has suffered is done with sin. For we have him and his gospel, don't we? We have his gospel in the throes of suffering. And that impacts our day-to-day life. Here, Peter is saying, Christians should arm themselves with that gospel, with a posture and willingness to follow Christ and to commit to endure suffering well for his sake, just as he suffered. And the commitment to this includes ceasing or breaking from sin. Peter's not talking about sinless perfection here. He's not. He is talking about a new way of living that is counter-sin and counter-cultural, the kind of living that is pleasing to God. And when we live like this, we walk with God and in his will, as it says there at the end of verse 2. And this is contrary to walking with the world. And what does it look like to walk with the world? Verse 3. Peter gives us a list. This is what marks the world. And when Peter says there that the time that his past suffices for doing what the world does, he's, he's essentially saying, stop, enough. Stop drinking the poison of sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He is saying to be a Christian is to be done with these things, to be done with the things of this world, to be done with the things that seem to satisfy and promise much but leave us empty and longing He is saying enough with the idols that build you up only to watch you fall. Beloved, these words are for us. Gospel-oriented living makes no provision for these. The pilgrim saints in Asia Minor needed to be reminded of this then, and we need to be reminded of this now. So what are your thoughts, actions, and attitude? What marks those? We ought to heed Peter's word and warning here. What does it look like in your life, not just externally, but internally, to put away these things? Maybe it's not as extreme as extreme drunkenness or orgies, but if we're honest, sensuality, passions, lawless idolatry, those hit close to home, right? Listen, the world, the flesh, and the devil, sin, wants to kill you. It literally wants to kill you. Sin desires to pull you under like an undertow, pulls down a human, and it will stop at nothing until you're drowned. Does that, does that seem extreme for me to say? Does it, does it seem kind of morbid for me to say that? Peter, Peter says it here. He calls these things a flood of debauchery. So brothers and sisters, arm yourselves 
with Christ and his word and his gospel. Arm yourself with that truth that is preached to you week after week here and preach it to yourself. For it is the gospel of God that brings new life in the spirit of God. And it's the same gospel that disarmed the spirits and authorities of this world. It's that same gospel that arms us with every spiritual protection until the day of Christ's return. Do you believe that? So be prepared to suffer and to be maligned by the world because of the way you live. Live vigilantly, putting off sin, putting it to death, remembering that on the last day, all will be judged. And on that day, there will only be two types of people, two types of people with two different destinations. Those who are alive to God, redeemed in Christ and welcome to heaven, or those dead in sin, marked by the world and welcomed into hell. So in preparation for that day, arm yourself today for every circumstance with Christ and his word and his gospel for the end is here. The end is here. In the last year of us living in Portland, the street art kind of got out of hand. And it seemed like overnight that there were pictures of Bill Nye, the science guy. You know Bill Nye? Pictures of Bill Nye were plastered all over Portland, and it said in giant letters, the end is nigh. Now, it seems kind of humorous. We kind of laugh, right? We, kinda, we get a little chuckle at that, right? It's, it's kind of funny. But it's true. It's true. We're living in the last days. Well, we are pilgrims in the last days. We've been living in the last days since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And Peter wants the church to remember that and to watch our lives as we're journeying toward heaven. That's what we see there in in verses 7 through 11. Here he says, the end is at hand, therefore you should do five things. Notice he said five things back at the beginning of this section that he wanted us to... uh, have unity of mind, have sympathy, have brotherly love, have tenderness, have humble mind. And here he's giving us yet again five more things. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded, love one another earnestly, show hospitality, and serve one another. This is what end times living looks like in the church today. Encouragement is the alpha and the omega of this section of the text. It's the A to Z of this section. And Peter calls us to action in five ways, in those five ways. Coach Peter wants us to live in a gospel-oriented manner. So Peter gives us a discipleship lesson here, and I want us to see how these five inform and impact our discipleship here in the life of our church. What gospel-oriented living looks like here Number one, he says, be self-controlled there in verse seven. As pilgrims in motion, we are in the world, but not of it. We have been given new life. And so we are to walk in that new life with one another, living with self-control, not being consumed with the passions and pleasures of this world, but instead living Christ-controlled lives until he returns. Second, he says, be sober-minded. In a distracted age, clear-headedness is difficult, Right? Every day we receive an onslaught of new information, fresh information, and it overwhelms our minds and it makes it hard to even pray. It makes it hard to pray. Our minds are cluttered with fears and tumults, pandemics and wars. Our minds are plagued 
We may know that God is sovereign. We may know that truth. But we're overcome and often overwhelmed by this world. And so Peter says, pilgrims, clear your head. Clear your head. Be sober. This world is not your home. So prepare your minds. Arm your minds for action for the sake of your prayers. And may we heed Peter's words and seek God in prayer. Additionally, he says, love one another earnestly. Did you notice that he says, above all, do this? OEBC, when we earnestly love one another, we display the love of Christ. We display the work of the gospel in our life. This is gospel love to lay our lives down for others and to love one another in that way. May this kind of love be the core of our gathering together, even here on Sunday mornings, in our equipping classes, in our care groups, in our one-to-one discipleship, and in our small group Bible studies that happen throughout the life of the church. May we love one another earnestly. Well, the last two, he says, show hospitality and serve one another. Where there is a love for one another, there is hospitality. The gospel is the greatest picture of hospitality in history, isn't it? Christ set aside his splendor and entered this place, exchanged a robe of splendor for a robe of frail humanity to bring salvation to sinners. And we ought to lay our very lives down for one another and open our homes and lives and tables and be hospitable toward one another. And to serve one another, as he says there in verses 10 through 11. Peter says in, that, in those verses, verses 10 through 11, that this is a matter of stewardship. Whether we are teachers of the word or we serve one another in accordance with the word, We are to steward the gifts that God has given us, those varied evidences of God's grace, the manifold grace of of God in our life, not only our individual life, but our life as a church family. Well, at the very climax of this section of the letter, Peter closes with the purpose behind gospel-oriented calling, suffering, and living. He said many things thus far, hasn't he? He said many things, but he wants us to walk away with this. What is the climax of this section of the letter? In the final words, verse 11, he proclaims that all of the Christian life, all of it culminates in the praise and glory of Jesus. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to revel and relish this truth. Our calling, our suffering, and our living is caught up in him. And caught up in his finished work in the gospel. And he alone is our comfort in life and death. This truth is so beautifully captured in the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let me, let me read those words for you, for you now. Just let these words kind of wash over you. What is our only comfort in life and death? That we are not our own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood and has set us free from the power of the devil. He also preserves us in such a way that without the will of our heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from our head. Indeed, all things must work together for our salvation. 
Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures us of eternal life and makes us heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Beloved, everything, not just some things, everything happens on our pilgrim journey in order that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, who is our comfort in life and death. And to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. He is our king. His gospel is our hope. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are truly beautiful. We praise you for what you have done for sinners in need of grace. May your word that we just received dwell richly in our hearts. May we be living gospel vessels of your grace and hope and love and mercy to one another and to the watching world. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.